Thank you for listening to High Green, the official podcast of the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society, where we delve into the history, memories, and legacy of the Route of the Minuteman. High Green is funded by your membership in the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society, and any views expressed on the show are solely those of the owner. If you'd like to learn more about what we do in the Society, or join us, you can head right on over to our website, www.bmrrhs.org. Perhaps this story hasn't been told in B&M circles, but it's, it's a B&M story and it's a good one. Oh my God, he says, I don't think I ever saw a train down here before. <laughs> he was amused. I still have that wanderlust. I still want to go back railroading. If you're looking to do some Boston and Maine research, Finally read that long-lost article of the B&M Bulletin, or just find some good reading material. We have you covered. Now available for purchase in our online store are individual digital issues of our famous publications, the B&M Bulletin and the Modeler's Notes. Society volunteers have worked hard to scan and upload this catalog of material consisting of 50 years of amazing knowledge. As hard copies of many of these issues are now difficult to find, This will help ensure that the knowledge will always be at your fingertips. And perhaps that issue you've been looking to add to your collection, you'll be able to find here. You can head on over to the digital media section of our online store, where you'll find free indexes of both the Modeler's Notes and the B&M Bulletin. Those detail the issues, when they came out, and what articles were inside. From that information, you can then page through the various issues available and hopefully find the ones that you're looking for. Welcome back to High Green. My name is Rick Cavori. It's been a little while since we've had new episodes of the show, but it's been an incredibly busy year for the society, uh, this summer especially. And so before we get started with today's episode, just wanted to give a little update of what the society's been up to this year so far. Uh, The biggest update that we've had is the complete overhaul of our website, bmrrhs.org. We had Rudy Garbelli of Garbelli Publishing Company rehabilitate our website, and Rudy did a great job completely redesigning the whole website uh, with a much more easy-to-use, more aesthetically pleasing interface. And uh, Rudy also did an awesome job uh, bringing all the old content over to the new website as well. One of the biggest updates on the website is a complete redevelopment of the online store. Previously, we were only able to accept PayPal payments on the website, but now uh, we're able to accept credit cards. So if you have a hesitation towards PayPal, or maybe you don't have a PayPal account, you're able to uh, purchase things in the online store with a credit card. You can also renew your membership in our online store, and you'll get an email uh, from our membership secretary telling you when to renew your membership. So it's a great way to uh, save yourself some postage, save the society postage, and uh, just renew right on the website. You'll get the email as a reminder too, so it's super convenient. We've also been working really hard on the digital media section of our online store. You can find back issues of the B&M Bulletin magazine on there as individual PDF downloads for purchase. And if you're a modeler, you can now find every issue of the modeler's notes right up until the very most recent issue on there as well. And we actually do have a full collection of the modeler's notes Um, So if you just like to get them all in one fell swoop, you can do that as well. Now, even though our main store now accepts credit cards, the digital media section of the store, unfortunately, is still PayPal only. But if you don't use PayPal and you'd like to purchase digital issues, you can just send us an email at bmrrhs at gmail.com, and we'll definitely work with you to get you what you need. A few more updates here. We've really been enjoying having in-person meetings again this year. We met in Rowley, Massachusetts, and we also met at our regular meeting location, Rogers Hall in Lowell, Massachusetts. We do have a meeting coming up on Saturday, November 12th at 3 o'clock p.m. in Rowley, Massachusetts. That's 477 Haverhill Street in Rowley. It's the police auditorium. Our presenter is going to be Andrew Rydell, who's hosted episodes of this podcast. He also has a popular column in the newsletter. 
and Andrew's going to be sharing pictures that he took while exploring former Boston and Maine rights of way. It's going to be a really interesting uh, chronological and geographic look at the B&M through his own life as a younger person following remnants of the Boston and Maine. On today's episode of High Green, we're continuing on with our oral history series, listening to the words of those who worked with the Boston and Maine and who were connected with the Boston and Maine in their own lives. Society member Jim Dufour, who models the Boston and Maine Railroad's Cheshire Branch in HO scale, graciously shared with us some tape recordings that he made uh, back in the day of various people who worked with and were connected with the Boston and Maine Railroad. One of those people was Walter Dunn. Jim actually recorded Walter twice, once during a one-on-one interview, which we'll hear in a future episode. And on tonight's episode, we're listening to Walter give a presentation for the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society on March 9th, 1985. This is the Historical Society. These are not single-space type notes I have here. They're just a few lines to help me get over what I'm trying to tell you in the form of reminiscences. And I'm not going to preface my remarks with a usual comment of unaccustomed as I am to public speaking, because that'll be readily evident before I get too far into it. Uh, I suppose these remarks could be designated as the decline of the BNM, but I don't direct them to you in that way. Uh, That's a well-discussed subject, and regrettably, there's no, up to the present time, right up this afternoon, there's not much of a turning point in the decline in view. But I'm only talking in decline in terms of many, many years prior to the time that I went on the railroad, which was in 1941, and up through the present. All of my comments to you will be as the railroad was seen through the windows of an engine cab. I know nothing of fiscal policies, very little about managerial policies, but from the operating end of it, I did have that experience, and that's what we're going to be trying to talk about tonight. First, we'll talk about manpower. This is, again, in terms of engine service only. In the year of 1921, there were in excess of 4,200 engineers and firemen employed on the Boston Main Railroad. This was after World War I was over and all the big layoffs had occurred and business was back to what they called normal in those days. Over 4,200 engineers and firemen. In 1941, when I went on the railroad, that number had dropped to 1,800. At the present time, in 1985, there are just about 250 engineers and no firemen. So you can see, when you talk about the decline of a railroad, it's reflected in manpower. It's just an incredible thing. And I'm not going to get into the whys of all this, but just to show you how the manpower levels have declined. Of course, between 1941 and 85, the diesel, which we're going to be discussing to some extent tonight, has made some contribution to this, but mostly It's just a complete loss of business, the abandonment of all the branch lines that we all know about, and several more things which are really beyond the scope of what I want to talk about. I'd like to tell you a little bit about the hiring practices on the Boston and Maine in 1941. They hadn't hired a single person, an engine or train service, between about 1922 and 1941. The industry was at a standstill. This was, uh, the factors entering into that were big motive power coming in. The 4,000 class locomotives, the Limas that we all know about, the 4100s, and so forth, increased the sizes of the trains and diminished the number of trains. That was one trend. The other was the Great Depression. The 1936 flood, which wiped out many, many branch lines which were never rehabilitated. All those things contributed to it. So now we get into the hiring practices. 1941, nobody could hope to enter either engine or train service unless your father was an engineer or a conductor or some strategic person in management. There was no such thing as walking in off the street and saying, 
equal rights. I want a job on the railroad. That was, those things didn't happen in those days. I've always felt that the word nepotism was given birth to in the railroad industry because it was really rampant at the time I came there. I had no father on the railroad. I didn't have anybody on the railroad. But what I had had was considerable experience on ships in the Merchant Marine prior to World War II, where I'd sailed as both a coal passer and a coal-burning fireman, where so many ships burned coal in those days. So I went there under the guise of an experienced man. That's the only way I, I got around the father bit in 1941. Uh, you were hired and sent to a doctor for a physical, which <laughs> Charlie Smith, one of my old friends in the railroad, is laughing, and I can understand that, because this same physical, in later years, I had an occasion of taking the, the physical, and the part of the test was a hearing test. And the old doctor that they had in those days was winding up a watch. And he said, can you hear that, Mr. Dunn? I said, oh, yes. So we walked back a little further. Can you still hear it? And I said, yes. Finally, he's way across the room. And he said, can you still hear that? I said, why, of course. He said, you've got exceptional hearing. And he popped the hunting case open, and there was no movement in it. <laughs> physicals we used to have. <laughs> of course, and I'm just digressing slightly, and I won't get too far astray. At the present time, each engine service employee takes the equivalent of an Air Force One physical, believe it or not. But I don't know how I ever got by that one, because I could never get into the Air Force at my age, but up to three years ago, I got by it every year. So that's how the physical thing has come full circle. But to go on with what I was describing, entering service on the railroad, you were given six so-called student trips, two in passenger, two in freight, and two in yard service. And you were merely sent out as a raw recruit, and you rode with the crew of the engine you were assigned to, which really, you didn't learn a thing, because there was so much to try and grasp. You're riding a moving vehicle, there's signals, there's stations, there's this, there's that. And in the two days in each class of service, you couldn't presume to really get a handle on what you're going to have to know intimately later on. But that's the way they did it. Right after I went on the railroad, World War, that is, this country had gotten into World War II. The, uh, you know, Great Britain and so forth had been in World War II since 1939. And the railroads in this country, along with the industry in general, were getting the benefit of Lend-Lease mass production, hauling the stuff to the seaports for transport overseas. So immediately, the Boston, Maine, and you can verify this in your, your book, Minuteman Steam, which is a club publication, how the Boston, Maine embarked on a wholesale scrapping effort just before World War II. They, they scrapped an untold number of locomotives, which two years later, they'd only had them. It got so bad that in the early part of 1942, the Boston Main Railroad was operating tonnage freight trains between Boston and Mechanicville with two hand-fired consolidation-type locomotives pulling them. And believe me, I've, I've fired many of those jobs west and then again east. And in the old days, when those engines were built, this is the 26 and 2700 class, which we call the K8s, they were built for a 100-mile run. I mean. The, the amount of coal they burned and the physical work involved in those things, after 100 miles, you know, you wanted to hang your, your shovel up. But to go almost 200 miles on the same locomotive with no brake, then take eight hours rest and come right back again, and then have eight hours off and do the same thing going west again, after a few weeks, you start to scratch your head, what is it all about? That was railroading at the time I went there. We had passenger trains right up to the end of steam service on my division, which was the Fitchburg Division, with hand-fired locomotives. We used to have a train that came out of Troy, New York every afternoon, and it made 18 stops between Troy and Boston. And uh, it had a 3600-class engine assigned, and it was always necessary, after you ran from Troy to East Deerfield, which is 91 miles, 
to take a second tent, tend to full of coal, because you'd never make, make Boston if you didn't. This is an incredible thing. But they were so desperate for motive power that the big engines were all used in freight. And many, many times I've seen the P4 class of 3700s, which we just lost one on exhibition here at the Museum of Science, assigned in freight service. And to commend them, they did a tremendous job considering the size driving wheels they had. Uh, we can go on and on describing individual experiences, and that isn't my purpose here. But one of the worst runs that I think anybody in the, the B&M could have ever held was a run that we used to have between Rutland and Troy, New York, which is joint service over the Rutland Railroad and the B&M Railroad. And uh, the Boston, Maine had two out of the four trains that covered that service. Two of them are through trains from Montreal, two ran just to Rutland. And we used to equalize the mileage by having either one or two for a designated period of time. On this particular night that I'm going to describe to you, it's hard to believe that even in New England it can get to be 48 below zero, but this night it was. We stopped at Manchester, Vermont. We had a meet with a freight train, so we decided to take water there, and uh, I couldn't swing the water plug around. It wasn't frozen. The metal had just seized due to being 48 below. So we just couldn't take water. We had to go to North Bennington, 35 miles from there, and take water, and then back up 35 miles with a light engine to get out of the train. We got out of the train, 17 Pullmans, we couldn't start it. The wheels were frozen to the rails. <laughs> this is the steam days that everybody thinks was so romantic. <laughs> you offer that a minute, I'll have a drink. <laughs> So finally, there was the Rutland freight that was in the clear for us, got behind us and pushed us out of there. And as we're passing the Rutland freight, I noticed in the rear end of the train, you train on single track, manual block territory, to always look for markers. There were no markers. So I told the engineer, I said, there's, there's no markers. Oh, he said, they probably just went out. Don't worry about it. And I said, no way. So we stopped. Come to find out that Rutland freight that we had to meet with had left a point beyond North Bennington down near Hoosick Junction with, had left and left 32 cars in the caboose there. Hmm. We'd have been in good shape. <laughs> a manual block with no signals coming down into that point. And we'd been to North Bennington and back and didn't, that tra the track wasn't blocked there, but just beyond North Bennington, these 32 cars in the caboose had been left stranded. What happened, it was so cold, while they were switching, the air hose had frozen on their rear car, and where they had air in the train, they thought they had the train. And they headed for Rutland. But that's the way it was in the steam days. Now, we used to have engineers, and you know, I have fond memories of many of them, because good, bad, or indifferent, you learn something from every one of them. And we used to categorize a lot of the real old timers as, they like to run 90 miles an hour and always try for more. And of course, the, the, the legal speed, the limit, was 70 miles an hour in the Fitchburg anywhere. But some of these old-timers just, they, they, they just beat the engine. And of course, on a hand-fired engine, the man that paid the price was the man on the other side of the cab. I'm not trying to eulogize a fireman here, but oftentimes in the, in the realm of enthusiasts, which I'm one myself, there's very little said. It's always the engineer. You never hear too much about the fireman or the contribution of the train crew. But in the days when we had a five-man crew, everybody contributed, and most particularly the man on the left-hand side of the cab. These engineers are able to run these terrific speeds, did it because we were able to keep the engine, keep the steam up, and keep that thing going for him. A lot of them ran the engines. They had a cutoff gauge set on there, which you ran. This is the cutoff of your valves and the cylinders proficiency and minimum fuel consumption, a definite number of points between the speedometer and the cutoff gauge. The old engineers never looked at the cutoff gauge. They listened to the stack, listened out the window to the stack. Was making plenty of noise. They were really pulling, doing a good job. Yeah. We used to come out of Canic Mechanicville on tonnage freight trains. Even the 4100s, the best engines the B&M ever owned. I mean, they were truly a magnificent engine for pulling and steaming and the whole thing. 
They've never had a better engine. That engine would have the coffin feed water pump on full head and both injectors on full head and the water going down in the gauge glass. That's because this engineer was listening to the stack instead of looking at the cutoff gauge. And if you get them to pull up on the reverse lever about halfway and bring the, bring the hands together, you'd see the water come right up on the glass, the steam would go up and a beautiful trip. But they all ran it by listening out the window. And most of them had more years than I put in, and their hearing wasn't all that good in their right ear. <laughs> so, what I'd like to talk about now a little bit is the transition era, if we can, between the days of the steam, that once the demise of steam started, and the inroads of the diesel was starting to make itself felt. That was with the arrival of the 4200 series, the car body types I know you're all familiar with. At first, everybody looked upon them with disdain. We had no conception of what, you know, the ultimate effect was going to be, not alone in terms of manpower, but the rest of it. But uh, take, for example, on April 21st of 1946, many of you know, of course, that was the day they cut the power off in the Hoosick Tunnel. And that was the end of the electric engines hauling steam-powered trains through the tunnel. Now, on that one day that they closed the, that is, that they did away with the electric engines in the tunnel, for 11 crews lost their, lost their runs, just in one day. That's 22 men had to go look for other jobs. And ultimately, 22 men at the foot of the seniority list went in the street. That's the way it worked. This was the beginning of dieselization. Uh, there's one thing that a lot of us lose sight of in the field of being an enthusiast or a historian or a preservationist is the maintenance end of the railroad. And I don't too, know too much about that. Brother Slayton over here knows all about it because he spent a life in the engine house, right? In the days, the peak days of steam, which I've been describing to you when I first went there, there used to be over 300 men per shift at the engine house in Charlestown. That's the big house that still stands, or the remains of it. There was over 300 men on a shift. And today, there isn't 100 men on three shifts. Think about that. This is just one little effect of the diesel. So we are going to get into the transition period from 1946 to 56, which I'd like to talk about. This is where steam went from predominance to nothing. We had an influx of 1,500 class engines, and I don't know how to designate them by memory like a lot of you fellows do by their classification. I'm not that good at it, but we had Alpha 1500s, we had EMB 1500s. We had EMB 1500s, the BL2s with a fancy cab that they sold to the Bangor Rustic, I believe, eventually. Uh, we had the 4200s coming in a profusion. Then we had the big double-engine passenger engines, the 3800s, beautiful engines. We had a succession of 1,200-class yard engines. We had 800s of EMD manufacture and also of Alco manufacture. And what did they replace? In that 10-year period, the entire 475 steam locomotives that the B&M was operating at the time I went there. And let me go back to 1913, just for a second, also at the risk of digression. In 1913, which was the peak year in the B&M's history, that is, trains operated 10 miles tall. 1913, they had 1,650 locomotives in service. That was a lot of locomotives. And at the end, towards the end of steam, when steam started to decline, it was 475 was the figure that I've always understood they had. So we then ran into a problem which, again, doesn't expose itself to most of us. We had our supervision, our immediate supervision, all during the years had been drawn from the ranks of engine crews themselves. These were men, usually, that were very proficient at operating a locomotive. They understood the firing of Stoker engines. And you know they were really good at what they were chosen for. But all of a sudden, we're going to dieselize now. And these men that have been on the railroad, some of them since the early 1900s, are suddenly going to become diesel experts. Well, I'll tell you how they did this. We called it the General Motors Charm School. <laughs> <laughs> Put another drink on that one. 
<laughs> Electromotive Division set up a charm school out there, and they said, send me your road foreman, you know? Send me your supervisors. Send me your traveling fireman. And in 10 days, they'll be a diesel expert. So what happened was that our road foreman, who all of them were fine people to have the supervisors, came back, and there were self-ordained diesel experts. They had a suitcase full of instruction books, and they didn't know how to spell the word polarity, you know? <laughs> this is a fact. So anyway, they had that diploma, and that's worth something, you know? I've even got one from Sunday school. That's worth something. <laughs> what happened was, as these men got out, and I was called for some job that had a diesel on it. This man, I used to help him up the, gang, up the steps with his suitcase full of instruction books. And in some cases, help him up too. <laughs> I really learned nothing because I, I didn't even have the benefit of an instruction book until the end of the trip. When he'd, he'd reach into his bag and like, you know, it was like something had been smuggled over the board to hand me an instruction book. Now you read that, boy. And I want to, next time I see you, I want to have some answers. Well, that's how we learned. But it really amounted to, during this transition period of 1946 to 56, was guesswork for all of us for many years. The only way you learned it was by, really by osmosis, by repetition. After a while, you have the same malfunctions. They, they come to you. you know, it's just, just inevitable because the same things did happen to the diesel. But believe me, there was a variety of them compared to steam. The only real thing that ever happened to a steam engine was that the steam gauge would go like that. But that could be corrected with a little, you know, a little thought. But the diesels, their malfunctions were pretty much all electrical. And with all credit to EMD, even the earliest diesels mechanically, they were indestructible. Same goes for alcohol. The mechanical end of all the diesels, nobody could fault them. But the control, the electrical end, even up till today, you know, leaves a lot to be desired. So uh, as we went into the diesel era, and steam is now on its way out, diesel-powered runs became preferred jobs for many of our crews, which of course this is understandable. Although there were many men who preferred to stay with steam. This is the older men. They all took the same position that the diesels were too complicated. Well, they were, there's no question about it. But uh, that was the two ways that our operating crews went. Some of them coveted runs that had diesel power assigned, others would have nothing to do with it, just due to the complications. But we had a lot of things go on during the early days of the diesels, which took place among the crews themselves. And one particular thing I want to tell you about, we used to have a terminal at Bellows Falls on the now vanished Cheshire branch. And there was pot steam and pot diesel ran in there out of Boston. So there was one job that come in there and uh, would go out with a diesel. And so... Uh, the other job came in right behind it with steam and went back. So what, what one of the crew members on the job that was going to have the diesel back east of Boston would do is get on the diesel, pull the ox chute out of the uh, control uh, contactor, the starting contactor, just put a piece of paper in it, put the ox chute back, and then the crew, the outgoing crew, you know, they couldn't get the diesel to move. Well, this is the year of... Nobody knew anything, and really that was quite a thing to find unless you were really intimately uh, schooled in, in uh, diesel controls. So the result was, okay, we'll take the steam engine, it's ready to go, and this poor guy go back to Boston with a hand-fired steam engine, and the other fellow go out and take the paper out of it and have the diesel So one of our fellows got wise to it one day, and uh, he just blocked another relay that nobody would ever find, so the diesel did stay there, and both jobs had steam. So. <laughs> another thing that we ran into, the older engineers. Now, you know, I, I know I date myself when I talk in, in years, but uh, 
When I went on the railroad, we had engineers that had gone to work there as early as 1885, if you believe that. This is 1941. They're still running an engine. And when the diesel era presented itself, these older men went home in droves due to the complications. And uh, then in 1954, the unions enacted a compulsory retirement law, which said at age 70, you had to retire, whether you liked it or not. Some of the extremists, as I would designate them, actually threatened the Boston Main Railroad with court action. We had one engineer that went to Frank Rock, who was then general manager, and said that you're interfering with my livelihood sending me home like this. And he was 77 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, these people have to remain nameless, but this is, this is what we we're up against. And another old engineer told me, and ladies, I know you'll pardon what I'm going to tell you, he said, there's two things I wanted to do, he said, before I got sent home by you young punks. Well, it wasn't us. We didn't send them home. The engineers' union signed the agreement out of common sense. He was 78 years old. And uh, I said, well, what was it? Well, he said, I still owe money on the car. And I'm waiting for my wife to have the baby, he said. <laughs> 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 Believe me, if, if he was waiting for a baby at 78, that was some dilemma. That's the way I was. <laughs> but anyway, as they went home, uh, uh, promotion became rapid for those of us who were now at the foot of the list. In fact, in a three-week period after this compulsory rule went in, it was 125 firemen promoted to engineer in three weeks. That's a lot on a small railroad. You could understand something like that on a big system like the Santa Fe or something, but for a tiny railroad like the B&M to upgrade 125 men in three weeks was unheard of. But it was just compulsory rule. I just want to tell you one anecdote about a real senior engineer that I used to fire for on a South Action passenger train. And we had the B-15 moguls assigned regularly until the Alpha 1500 started arriving. So they assigned one to him on that run. And that was a quite a train. It was a two-car wooden train, you know, the old platform cars, which if they weighed 35 tons, they weighed a lot. And by virtue of that, they had no braking force. So one day, we were coming out of West Concord, going towards South Acton. That's quite a racetrack, if you want it to be. And I noticed that he's, he's going at this incredible speed. So I went over to him. I said, what are you going so fast for? He says, I'm not going fast. He says, we're only going 30 miles an hour. We, we must have been doing 80 or 85. <laughs> Come to find out, there was a gauge there, and he thought it was a speedometer. It was a DC Emmy gauge. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of these instructors of ours with a suitcase full of instruction books had qualified him. <laughs> but, uh, Sadly, all the steam power that we knew at the, in the 1946 era, at least, was what I call war-weary. You know, you've heard people express the dream that maybe that 3017 could, 3713 could be reactivated sometime. Never happened. They'd have to have a new boiler, because that boiler is just held together by welds. The railroad, they, they beat those engines into the ground. You, you can't, I can't describe to you the lack of maintenance that they got during those years. So when 1946 came, it was their time, you know? <coughs> the B&M did, much to our dismay at least, they systematically scrapped all the Stoker-fired engines and kept the hand bombers up till the end in 1956. Of course, there was a reason for that, and you know, we, we, ex we accepted that, although as distasteful as it was. Because Stoker-fired steam locomotives weren't all that bad to work on, really, particularly in passenger service. Those, they did a tremendous job, and there was no, no physical work, and all you did is just use your head and get from one point to another. But no, the B&M scrapped all that good power and kept the hand bombers. The reason being was less maintenance on them. The lower operating and fuel costs was really what decreed it, because it was silly to have a big P4 locomotive and local passenger service pulling three cars when a mogul would do the same thing for half the coal consumption, crew costs being the same. 
So that's what happened. The, the big engines went, and the, the small ones stayed to the end. Uh, the, the interesting thing about the uh, diesels, as time went on, and each of us became more proficient at operating the diesels, the steam power jobs then were no, no longer a, a thing that anybody wanted. They were really studiously avoided. And uh, the very youngest men covered them right up to the end. And uh, it's really hard to say tonight, you know, as much as it may, may not sound right to you folks, that there was nobody in the operating crafts on any railroad, of my knowledge, that lamented the steam engine when it went, because it was just a, an unbelievable chore to fire and run those things from one point to another. This was due to their, really their mechanical condition at the end of it was unbelievable. The railroad did everything they could do to avoid maintenance, and sadly, the B&M and the New Haven Railroad, during the years that steam was on its way out, led the industry in the ICC reporting to get up on that locomotive cab and do that as a livelihood, particularly at the end when, as I say, the mechanical condition was so bad, is something that really defies description, and I won't burden you with it tonight. Maybe another time we can talk some more about that, if you'd like. The old engineers that went home, for the most part, all suffered from some form of kidney malfunction or from bad backs. And this was just due to the way the steam engines rode. And in that last 10-year period that I keep referring back to, 1946 to 56, as the conditions of power went down, it's just amazing that more people weren't plagued with it because just the vibration, the pounding of those engines with, the, with everything so loose on them, of course you had kidney problems, of course you had bad backs. Although today, a side effect of diesels, you know, an ultra-precision machine by comparison, is deafness. Every man in engine service and every railroad in the United States today has a percentage, and some a good percentage, of deafness in the higher decibels because of the noise of the diesel. So, the 1956 to 58 era, I'm just gonna to touch that, touch down on that briefly, because 1956 was the last steam that was operated in the B&M, as we all know. There's a lot of contention about where it was, and I'm not gonna get into that here, because I don't know that much about it. I think I know where it was operated, but. Uh, there were random cases of after the official end of steam that steam engines were operated. Now I want to tell you now what happened in 1958. This is only two years after the last steam engine had been operated. It became necessary in the B&M's view to move the 4113 from Boston to Mechanicville for snow melting service. And the 4113 was the last R1 on the property. The others had all gone to B&O or been scrapped. So in order to get a crew to operate that, they got an engineer off the spare board, as we call it, where you know your extra jobs are called from, who was not qualified on steam. This is only two years after steam is gone. This is how rapidly promotion took place. And then on the fireman's spare board, in those days every job had a fireman. They had to get down 17 places to find a man that was qualified to fire a an R1 4100 class engine. They had to run around 17 men that had never been on a steam engine two years after steam went out. This is how fast this transition took place. So, anyway, they finally got the mechanic bill. I thought you'd be interested to hear this. It took 16 hours right on the button to make mechanic bill. They had to go in at East Deerfield and take water because the rivets on the tender were leaking so bad that they couldn't hold water. They were almost out of water when they got to East Deerfield, 100 miles. No train, just a light engine. <laughs> this, is, this is steam power at the end of steam. So uh, I'd just like to maybe, in sort of a conclusion, as a conclusion, let me tell you a little bit about what we used to do in our away from home part of a run. As you all know, you run from one point to another. Most of them involves a layover at the other end of the road somewhere. 
Now, I ran in the Pittsburgh division, and our principal layover point was Mechanicville, New York. Or it could have been Troy if it was passenger service. Or it could have been White River Junction was freight, and it could have been Springfield. Well, in Troy, we had a, a really, you, you'd have to, Duncan Hines should have seen this place. <laughs> we had a, a bunk facility that was made out of a complex of freight cars from the Troy and Boston Railroad. And the centerpiece of it all was an old caboose. And uh, its principal claim to fame was the, the rodents and the bugs. This, this is absolutely unbelievable. We used to come into Troy, and on the steam pipes in the bunkhouse, which occurs to my height, I, uh, I used to have to walk like this under them. You would hang your bag on, you know, the meat hooks they have in freight cars, these big metal meat hooks? Hang your bag on that. So, because if you left it on the floor, there would be nothing left of it in the morning. <laughs> but some of the, the rats used to be able to come across those steam pipes and still get down that meat hook and help themselves what was in your bag and go up again. So, at one point, I woke up in the middle of the night, I'd gone up there on a, on a run, which was always stuck in my mind, too, for another reason. And I complained that I had found bed bugs. The general foreman of the engine house, he rose up in indignation. And it's a good thing that he was a lot older than I was, or I, I think I'd have been in physical jeopardy. He says, I don't know where you find bed bugs, he said. That bunk, I just headed out in the yard the other day and I burned it off with a blowtorch. He said, there's no problem. <laughs> and then he slammed his hand on the desk and says, you must have brought them from home. <laughs> this is our rest facilities away from home point. Mechanical is a little bit different. What took precedence over bugs there was pigeons. <laughs> I woke up one morning real early, and you know, you used to, you hear pigeons everywhere. We had morning doves in the trees around our house. You don't think too much of it. As I woke up, the blanket on my bed was wet, and I couldn't figure this out. I looked up, and there was a rafter right over me with about 20 pigeons on it. <laughs> so I went down and complained about that. Well, he says, we're overcrowded here. Where do you want me to put you? <laughs> It was one end of the eaves of that YMCA building that was open, and the pigeons used to come in there at night, and about six in the morning or five in the morning, they'd go out. But they hadn't gone out yet when I woke up and found this stuff all over my blanket. But anyway, in due course, folks, the railroads and the unions involved, they both stepped into the 20th century together and wrote a lodging agreement like airline pilots and truckers have, and today we stay in decent places that it wasn't too many years ago that this was a fact. So I just want to conclude my remarks then by saying it's been nice to talk to you tonight. And uh, I just really picked up random subjects. If there is some time in the future you'd like to continue with this, I'd be only too happy to come before you again and, uh, you know, spell out some more of it to you. And if time permits and President Hagopian deems it wise, if you'd like to have some sort of a question and answer period, I'd be glad to field your questions, whatever they are. You know, if I can answer them, fine. If I can't, well, I also indicate. Yes, sir. Uh, what did you think of the P4? That was an excellent locomotive. As I said earlier in our discussion, they, had, they saw in times of heavy business quite a bit of freight service. I used to have one that ran from Boston to Worcester every Sunday night. They used to take that P4 from Boston and bring it to Worcester and swap it with another P4 that had come off a cross-country passenger train from Portland. And those engines did a magnificent job. And even with their, with their big drivers, with judicious handling, they'd pull the tonnage they were rated for. And one thing about the P4s, and not to, you know, not to load you with a lot of detail, they were poorly designed engine, actually. They were really a USRA Pacific with some embellishments that the B&M insisted on when they were first built in 1934. And one thing they never did, they put big cylinders on them, much bigger than the USRA design ever called for, but a small boiler, small firebox particularly. And they were very tricky engines to fire. If you, you know, if you had the fire just right, there was no limit to what they could do. 
But the least mistake you made in getting a little too much coal up front or a little too much down back, and that will leave the grates a little bare in front, you're out of business. But if you really know how to, to handle those engines right, and as I said previously, run them by the cutoff gauge and not listen to them, <laughs> they take you from here to the West Coast with no problem. They're a beautiful engine, really. Yes? Would you mind making a couple of comparisons between the Alco and the GM motor power as to which you preferred and, and so on? Obviously, you can both. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, I have to say, unequivocally, that the EMDs take the prize. The Alco locomotives, uh, from a availability and a dependability standpoint, were really, I guess, ahead of the EMDs. They, they showed less malfunctions in, let's say, a 30-day period than an EMD might, the same type of service. But their, their ability to respond to pulling a train, I'd say the horsepower curve, and, and uh, uh, the way they could start a train and the way they rode left much to be desired. And they had that unbelievable engine in it, which up until you get up to about 10 miles an hour, it throw red flame right out the stack, as you know. In fact, I stalled on Belmont Curve out in Belmont here one night and set the Clark Street Bridge on fire. <laughs> <laughs> not, don't mistake me, not on purpose. <laughs> we had a, were on the milk train going out of Boston one night, and uh, we had sticking brakes, and that's how I stall, was sticking brakes, and we got the brakes released, and then try and stop that train on that curve, that grade, and slacking back and forth, and right on the Clark Street Bridge, and every time you'd open the throttle, the red flame would come right up out of the stack, and that's what happened. Then, uh, not to be outdone, we did the same thing at Lincoln, at Cotman's Bridge, just west of Lincoln on the same night. That's the alpha. No, the EMD, just to answer your question, was a far superior engine in, in all respects, even the, just the, the, the comfort in the cab, the way they rode and handled were much superior to the Alcos. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Uh, about two years ago, we saw an Alco in the DNA spoon The plane's going to be about three feet higher. Oh, yeah. What caused it? Well, that, what causes it is, it's a, it's a primitive injection system is what it is compared to what GM has. You know, two cycle opposed to four cycle. And what, what Alco did, they designed this terrific charge of fuel to go into that engine for, you know, maximum horsepower for starting, but it's uh, supposed to be burned off by a blower that's run by the exhaust stream, a turbocharged, exhaust turbocharged blower. And the blower maintenance is what causes that. And the B&M was never known to over-maintain anything, <laughs> including exhaust turbochargers. And that's really what does it. If that turbocharger is in the condition it's supposed to be and spins right up to speed like it's supposed to, you just get a puff of black smoke. But if the veins are all gone or the, the bearings are gone and it's just there for the ride, you've got raw fuel combusting right in the air. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Uh, I'd like to apologize for my ignorance of uh, electric motors and diesel locomotives, which you mentioned a device called a uh, arc chute. Yeah. Yes, and all an arc chute is is a, a it's a molded piece of uh, fireproof material. Let's say it's heavy, hard molded asbestos. It used to be. I don't know what they use today now that asbestos is outlawed. But <clears throat> any electrical contact, particularly DC, and at 600 volts, which the diesel runs on, when that makes or breaks, you've got a terrific arc there. You can't help it because Sometimes when your engine is under full throttle load and you shut off, it lets go on the terrific arc. Now the arc chute is just a molded box like that slides right over the contactors and separates that contactor from any other contactor in the row. So there's no possibility of fire from a flash or anything like that. It confines the arc inside the box. Each contactor has one. And to remove them, all you do is just pull them off by hand and spring clip-loaded, you know, and then push them back in by hand. It's just a protective, fireproof device is all it is. Well, you put the paper in between the contactors, so nothing would make, see? That was the trick there.
<laughs> yes, go on. They don't mention the pest control methods they had in East Deerfield. Use the what? The pest control that they used on East Deerfield. <coughs> oh, yeah. Stuart was one of my former brother locomotive engineers, Stuart Hinchcliffe, I'm sure you all know him. He said that I ought to get uh, come in on the, uh, well, we had the discussion about the bunk facilities, the rest facilities at the five terminals. The one at East Fitchburg was in a class by itself. Number one, all the bunks were in one room like this, with maybe about 35 bunks in there. We used to call it the morgue. That was his designation. <laughs> because it wasn't unusual. And busy, you know, when times were busy, and East Fitchburg was an all-steam terminal. Every job had a pusher. And uh, sometimes they used to push east out of Fitchburg, just up over North Lemerson or down to Derby Bridge to push trains east. And all kinds of helpers and extra jobs. So there were a lot of crews stationed there. And uh, what Stuart was talking about pest control was, this is again in my very early days on the railroad. I was working out of East Fitchburg, and uh, you know, this morgue thing in itself wasn't too palatable. But I looked down on the floor, and there was a cockroach about five inches long running across the floor. So I went over and stepped on it. And one of the old timers, one of the real superannuated engineers, got up and he says, hey you, he said, what do you think you're doing? I said, I just killed that cockroach. He says, you've got no right to do that. He said, the company imported those things from Africa and put them here to kill the other cockroaches. <laughs> 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 he, he was really indignant because these things were predators. They would eat all any other vermin that was in there. They'd take care of it. But along a few years later, what happened was we had all cockroaches this morning. <laughs> Finally, we prevailed on the railroad to get exterminated to come in there and we could live with what was there. Which, but that's the story on the pest control at East Fitchburg. <laughs> Anybody else have any questions? Yes, sir. Yes, do you have any experience with the uh, central mass and the uh, old mobiles that they used to have? No. See, the central mass was on a different operating division than I was employed on. That was part of what we called the New Hampshire Division. But the moguls, I had plenty of experience with them, but not, not on that particular run. You know, I, I, I have been out there a few times with nothing other than just routine trips. Was it, in fact, easier to fire the smaller engines and bombers than trying to hand fire a big engine or that event? Well, if you mean, you mean like to hand fire a Stoker engine? A Stoker? You mean the... You mean just to hand fire a small like a mogul? Uh, the 3600s and the 26 and 2700s before the law required them to put stokers on them. They were the biggest. Uh, the mogul was a much easier engine to fire than the 3600s, you know, the Pacifics or the 26 or 2700s. By virtue of the fact it was a smaller engine, a smaller firebox, and it would only take so much coal, it would only do so much work. And the amount of coal you burned was negligible compared to the other two classes, you know, bigger engines. Yes, right. And let's see now. This gentleman right here, and then I'll take you. All right. What's your favorite section on the six thirty-eight? Favorite section? The Cheshire Branch, I would say. Which the Cheshire Branch officially left the Pittsburgh main line at South Ashburnham. And then one northwest of Bellows Falls, which was 53 miles from South Ash. <clears throat> that was a single track railroad, but, uh, you know, from the standpoint of scenery and uh, uh, when you're on the grade, you were working hard, but when you're going down the grade, you weren't doing anything. And it was just a succession of hills all the way. That would be, I would say, by far, the Chester Branch was really the nicest piece of railroad to operate on. Yes, sir. I held 41. Right. That was the seven-day week was in effect. Yes, it was. 16-hour day. Right. And penalized the mocking off. Right. I can't imagine the human body taking that toll year out the incredible. Uh, oh, yeah. I knew it was standing 
Well, the only thing is, I just have to hold on the table when I say it. I'm living evidence of it. <laughs> but seriously, when you come on the railroad, we still had 16 hours. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. No, that was just a thing that... That was the times. But what you used to do, you marked yourself off. You just wouldn't answer the phone. What are they going to do? You, know, just, you get too tired, you just don't answer the phone. Yes, sir. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, I'm just trying to think. The worst thing I had happened in recent years was about a year before I retired, uh, uh, coming out of Lincoln, going east, and uh, I went over what they call Great Road Crossing, a reverse curve. We came around the last part of the curve. There's a flatbed trailer stalled on the crossing with a bulldozer on it. We hit that thing going about 50 miles an hour. That was the most recent one. And, uh, uh, 1500 happily that was when they had the push-pull trains and the bud car if, if the bud car had been leading I would be here tonight but with the, with the 1500 EMD diesel the uh, F7 we survived it and uh, of course it demolished the front of the engine you, you couldn't believe it it took the flatbed trailer just broke it in three pieces and scattered it threw the tractor way off somewhere and when the dust settled, the town man of Waltham and he says, don't leave there till you report to me. He said, that train wasn't about to go anywhere. <laughs> no front wheels under it, no pilot, no front end, no nose, no nothing. Don't leave there, he said, until you report to me. <laughs> then there was other things, derailments. I had a, a real good derailment one time in Keene due to tampered switches. You know how they break a switch lock and just lay the switch open slightly, but you couldn't detect it by the switch light, and you couldn't see it due to being a foggy night. And I went into a sidetrack, turned over, and then turned upright again. <laughs> oh, plenty of you know if you want to sit and think about them. Yes, sir. Yeah, what did you talk about the old time engineers you worked with? What was the oldest locomotive you remember working on uh, the oldest locomotive that I can recall was the uh, 933 and the 939. They were an A41 class, and I think they were built by Manchester around 1892, Dick. Yeah. One more question? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a lot of experience with those. I'm just curious. I've heard in a very, very general way that they were hard to keep popular in the life. What was the relationship with the smoke, you know, with the fireworks? Hard to keep, keep steam up, you mean? Steam up, yes, they really weren't. In fact, uh, in our bullet, maybe you recall this, Bob, somebody has inquired somewhere along the line, what did the term mudsucker mean? I can answer that if anybody wants to hear it. This is the 2,900 3,000-class engine. They were, they were among the most powerful steam engines that was ever built at the time they were built, you know, for their weight and their size, their bore and their stroke. And those engines working full throttle and, and right down at half stroke, the, the, the cycle in the boiler of those things was just unbelievable, you know, in terms of steam generation, you know, circulation to, to help steam generation. And the word mudsucker came from the fact that in the legs of the water legs of the boiler, and around what they call the mud ring, that's where the circulation in any boiler is the poorest, right around the firebox at the base of it. The old men used to allege that those boilers worked so hard on the load that it actually sucked the mud up out of the water legs and blew it out the stack. That wasn't true, but that's where that name came from. But they were good steaming engines, really. Oh yeah, they had duplex. They had one on each side of the cab, a, a ratchet. Reciprocating thing. Yes, sir. Uh, you mentioned uh, some flood from damage to the 
That wraps up this week's episode of High Green. If you'd like to be on the show, or if you know anybody that has stories or memories of the Boston and Maine Railroad, you can reach out to us. Please send us an email at bmrrhs at gmail.com, or you can send us a message right on Facebook. Hope you enjoyed tonight's episode, and we're looking forward to having you back for next time.